Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Under Pressure, with a message titled, Wives and Husbands. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want to begin by reading today's text. It's 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. See, at first reading, a great many, both Christians and non-Christians, are going to have an instinctive reaction to get their backs up. I mean, after all, we've gone through a great social change in which women and men now function as equals, and in which the roles that were once assigned to gender have largely been removed. The phrase, wives be subject to your husbands, and then later, submit to your husbands, and then finally, act like Sarah, who called Abraham Lord, well, that strikes many of us today as a series of commands thankfully relegated to the past. Now, I'll get back to that critique, for it's not possible you know, to study this passage today without dealing with how this passage sounds in the contemporary world. But a good rule for understanding what we're reading is that we understand what we're reading before we react. So hear it out, understand what's being said, then react, then respond and form opinions. But let's be honest. Marriages, I think, are very often the playing of a violin. In the hands of the untrained, violin sounds worse than scratching you know, one's fingernails across one of those old blackboards that once existed. Or they sound like you know, torturing a cat. And yet, in the hands of a master, that same violin sounds so lovely, it brings many to tears, having listened to utter beauty. And marriages are like that. I mean, some couples in marriage do great damage to one another, damage that leads to a lifetime of wounds and hurt. And yet, a good marriage is love and companionship and shared goals and sharing of children, the traveling on for a lifetime together. And we might ask, how can a good marriage be one where the wife calls her husband Lord and needs to do everything he says? I mean, that sounds not like love and companionship. It sounds like, you know, a power relationship. Ah, but as I've said, before we critique, do we understand? And if we are to understand, let's make sure we understand the time when this was written and to whom the passage was written. So let's start with the phrase in verse 1. It's the phrase, if some do not obey the word. And then the phrase, they may be one without a word. And so we can see that the entire paragraph starts with a general command. Wives, be subject to your husbands. And that phrase, well, that's not unique to Peter. We find the same phrase in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then also in Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. See, the New Testament gives us an ethic. 
And it's found in all Christian marriages. And that ethic is that the husband and the wife are fully equal, and yet they play different, or might I say, complementary roles. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives are to submit to their husband as the church submits to Christ. In other words, husbands are to lead in the way that Christ led, sacrificially giving their lives for their wives, and wives are to submit to their husbands, honoring the leadership role that God has given them. It's not a pattern for abuse or domination. It's a pattern for a loving expression of God-given roles within a relationship of care for one another and of submission to Christ. Ah, you might say, well, that's the ideal. And it's great when you have the ideal, but what happens when it's not there? And that is where we begin to doubt. So let's go back to 1 Peter. You're going to notice that he begins with the Christian truism. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Submit to them. Let them lead. And after giving that general rule, Peter now goes from that to the specific. So what if you have a husband who doesn't obey the word? Which means, what if you have a husband who's not a believer, who doesn't accept the role of being a sacrificial leader of following Christ's example? What if he doesn't believe that he should lay down his life for his wife? I mean, what then? Indeed, let's go further. What if he's antagonistic to the faith? So let's do a short study of what marriages looked like in the Greco-Roman world. In her study of the common thinking of marriage in the Greco-Roman culture, Karen Job states that it was expected that the wife would not have friends of her own apart from her husband. And furthermore, it was expected that the wife would adopt her husband's religion which would include worshiping the very gods that her husband worshiped. And furthermore, it was becoming quite common by the time that Peter wrote his book that Christians were blamed as the cause of any calamity, any natural calamity, because they had introduced a new god into the mix and they had upset the religious status quo. And given that reality, one can only imagine what it must have been like in those cases where the wife came to faith in Christ and the husband did not. And Job says that the conversion of the wife would be the cause of great embarrassment and shame for her husband. He'd suffer the criticism of his friends and family, the wider community. He'd be charged with not managing his own household. Indeed, his wife's conversion would have consequences going so far as excluding him from certain honors that might have come his way had his wife not come to faith in Christ and insisting on meeting with Christians in a church and carrying on her faith and refusing to worship his gods. Remember, as we're reading through the book of 1 Peter, we've been reading about the church of Jesus as it was facing persecution from a wide variety of sources. And so when we read 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, We're reading about the conversion of wives whose husbands aren't believers. And had her husband come to Christ, well, he would have been instructed on the unique role of the Christian husband in marriage. That would have included understanding the unique roles of both husbands and wives in an atmosphere of holiness and godliness. But in this case, what are wives to do? Well, there's an old story I remember. I'm sure it's fictional. The wife was ready to go to church. She's ready to leave. The husband had a shotgun in his hand, and he said, if you plan to go out to that church again, I'm going to shoot you. And she said, if you shoot me, I'm going to heaven. And if you don't, I'm going to church. Well, that pretty much sums it up. And so Christian wives were finding fellowship with Christians, often unrelated to their husbands. They were worshiping the one true God. They were rejecting the idols of their husbands. And given that new state of affairs in the home, 
what is she supposed to do? Notice the latter half of verse 1. So if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That is, the Christian wives offered up to their pagan husbands their submission wherever they could give it. And I mean to put it that way simply because submission here is not an absolute. See, the wife serves Christ first, but offers submission to her husband in any way that does not demand that she's unfaithful to Christ, as in perhaps, you know, worshiping her husband's gods. And so her conduct is to be such so that she wins her husband without a word. Her godly conduct speaks to her husband. He's not embarrassed because of her faith. He finds that because of her faith, she respects him all the more, and he senses that. And Peter speaks of two kinds of conduct. The first is respectful conduct. The implication is that it's a matter of profound respect. It's not a feigned respect, a genuine one. Let me make application. And women, hear me now. The sexiest thing that you've ever said to your husband is not that he looks good, but that you respect him. And the next thing Peter asks of Christian wives is not only respectfulness, but pure conduct. That is, without moral defect. They conduct themselves consistently as unto Christ. Now then, Peter needs to add something in verse 2. He says, don't let your adorning be external. And so when Peter speaks about, you know, braiding of the hair, I mean, keep in mind that in that day, a woman of means would have very elaborate method of doing her hair, a method that would require servants and would take most of the day to get it done. Now, when Peter says not this, it must be that some of the women he was addressing, Christian women, you know, had the means to dress that way. Hair covered in jewelry, the most expensive clothing. So let's make application. There are various ways of dressing that are not conducive to the life of godliness. Now, here's an easy one. Women, provocative clothing, clothing meant to reveal your sexuality, is not the dress of a woman of godliness. But according to our passage, neither is ostentatious clothing, meant to showcase your status or your wealth. So you have to remember that you can have a beauty that far surpasses the beauty of the world. So let's learn more. Back to the Bible Canada is approaching its fiscal year end, making June a financially critical month for the ministry. Over these past few years, Back to the Bible Canada has been committed to ensuring that in unpredictable times, you can rely on our Bible teaching and engagement resources to provide the comfort and guidance of God's Word. This year, to ensure we reach our goal, a few generous ministry friends who share our heart for Bible teaching have offered to help us reach our year-end target of $409,000 by pledging to match every dollar you donate up to $100,000. This will double the impact of your gift. There is no better time to consider supporting this ministry than right now. We'd be so grateful for any gift you might choose to give. So for more information or to donate, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When speaking of the decorum of a Christian wife, what Peter says can be used to speak of the decorum of any Christian woman, whether married or not. See, Peter mentions two things. The first thing that should adorn a beautiful Christian woman is the hidden person of the heart. 
as we read that and ponder what that might mean, I mean, we might think of what God said to Samuel the prophet when he was searching for the next king of Israel. You might remember 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And in Peter's words, the hidden person of the heart will become apparent on the outside. Well, I suppose another way of saying that would be to say that what a person is on the inside can't remain hidden. But what is the hidden person of the heart? Well, the answer is that it's the wife's inward nature. It's her true character. It's a reflection of what she truly loves and what she adamantly rejects. And this hidden inner life reflects on the outside in terms of her attitudes towards things. Let's say that this woman has a deep love, both for Jesus himself and the ways of Jesus. And let's also assume that her hope, as Peter has described it, is a living hope grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. That is, she knows that she's in exile here on this earth and that she is an inheritance in the world to come that's imperishable and undefiled. And let's assume that she rejoices in her sufferings because she knows that these have been appointed to her by God so that her faith will emerge as a tested faith. It's going to result in glory to God. Well, now, with those inner heart attitudes, she projects a spirit of joy and of calm, of acceptance of the present difficulties with an undiminished hope. She doesn't berate her husband. She submits to him. That's to say, says Peter, once you get to know her, she's actually beautiful. Now then, Peter adds a second bit of inner beauty of this woman. She has a gentle and quiet spirit. And the word gentle is the same Greek word that sometimes gets translated as meek. It doesn't mean she's easy to be pushed around. It means that she's not demanding. She's not high maintenance. She's not always pushing her rights. I mean, rather, she's a woman at peace. Her spirit is quiet. She trusts in God to care for her needs, and she's not difficult to deal with. Now, when Peter not only describes such a woman as beautiful, which she truly is, but he also adds that these virtues are precious in God's sight, and not just precious, very precious. Peter comes back to the matter of submissiveness. He says that the holy women of the past who hoped in God adorned themselves with the virtues that he's just described and that they used these virtues as they submitted to their husbands. In other words, Peter again makes the point that the submission he calls for is not just for women married to non-Christian husbands, but that submission is a virtue of godly women throughout the ages. And here Peter gives us Sarah as an example. Peter says that Sarah called Abraham Lord. So what's Peter referring to? Well, here it gets interesting because the only place that we have in the Old Testament where Sarah refers to Abraham as Lord, that's in Genesis 18, verse 12. And there, it's a kind of a one-off. It's an offhanded comment where she, in hearing that she's going to become pregnant in her old age, says, you know, I'm old and worn out. And my Lord is as well. I mean, that passage hardly gives us a sense that in some fashion, Abraham was towering over her and ordering her around and demanding actions of her. But it's appropriate for Sarah to call Abraham her Lord at this stage. I mean, after all, when Sarah and Abraham left for the promised land, they were given a promise, a blessing, a land, an inheritance so large that couldn't be counted. Now, Sarah didn't hear any of that. That's what God said to Abraham. But she was convinced that as his wife, she would submit to him and follow him on this wild journey of faith. They would leave their home, journey to a land that God would give them. She'd allow Abraham to lead. And so don't get hung up on the word Lord. 
Sarah didn't believe Abraham was her God or that Abraham was infallible, that he was in some way to be obeyed without question. I mean, none of that. Rather, she allowed him to lead and she willingly followed. That's what she meant by Lord. And it's out of that mold that Peter speaks to Christian wives. Let Sarah be your example and become one of her children. Now, at times, as we know, as in the case, you know, when Abraham sold Sarah into an Egyptian harem out of fear for his life, I don't think this is either Abraham's nor Sarah's finest moment. Sarah's not required to obey Abraham when he asks of her something that would violate the conduct of a woman who exhibits the hidden beauty of the heart. However, she is right to follow Abraham even when, out of lack of faith, he goes to Egypt. She doesn't abandon him. She continues to follow him, and she allows him to lead. This is what it is to be Sarah's daughter. It is to do good. It's not to fear that which is frightening. Peter says, do what Sarah did. Trust that God will watch over you even when it's scary. Be a woman of faith. And I need to stop here and discuss something that this passage doesn't speak about. It's about abuse. Does this passage leave the implication that women should submit to an abusive husband? Again, the passage doesn't mention that. And in the case of Sarah, she wasn't married to an abusive Abraham. It's clear also, as in the case of Hagar, where Sarah counseled Abraham to have a child through another woman. That was Sarah's idea. It wasn't Abraham's. What that incident suggests is that Abraham and Sarah, while they did dialogue with each other as to what to do next, even when it led them into sin. Now about abuse. Abuse is another matter. Women who are in an abusive relationship are not being called upon to submit to their husband's abuse. I could spend some time here talking about that, but I leave it for another time. This passage, made no mistake about it, is not about submitting to abusing husbands who do violence. But before we end this discussion, let's go to verse 7. For now is the instruction to husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So the first thing that Christian husbands are required to do is to live with their wives in an understanding way. Literally, it's translated, live with your wives according to knowledge. That is, know your wives, understand her needs, know her loves, the things she rejects. Get to find out who she is, live with her, and let your life together be informed by the kind of woman that you celebrate life and love with. And it's so important. Husbands should never say to their wives, I mean, why can't you be like, and you know what, fill in the blank. Respect who she uniquely is. The second thing that Peter commands husbands is that they show honor to her as the weaker vessel. And the idea that the woman is a weaker vessel is probably obvious when you think about it. I mean, in most cases, the husband is physically stronger than she is. And I'll also argue that when it comes to the bearing of children and the nurturing of infants from her breast, you know, the devotion to her children puts the woman in a weaker, vulnerable position. She's weaker in those ways. And so knowing this is the case, the husband needs to show her additional honor. And I think the honor that's required here is the knowledge of the unique role that God has given her. And this is where the knowledge of complementary roles comes in. If God wishes for the husband to lead, is he aware of just how vulnerable that makes her? If you are to honor her, you're going to provide the kind of leadership that seeks her protection, that builds her up and doesn't tear her down. And there's another concept of honor. You know, in the Bible, a person who's honored is a person who's recognized in some way. 
You might remember the book of Esther. You know, in one incident, the king asks the wicked Haman, what's to be done with the man that the king wants to honor? And Haman's a wicked man, and he thinks the king wants to honor him. And so he says, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Let him sit on the king's horse. Let him lead him through the public square and address all the people and say, this is the man that the king wants to honor. In other words, he lets people know how the king is pleased with him. I think that's what Peter has in mind when he calls husbands to honor their wives. Let people know that the wife you have is a worthy woman and let them know the virtues you see in her. And then Peter adds more. Understand that your wife has inherited from God the grace of life. Don't think of her as an inferior, for she, like you, was made in the image of God, and as such, she has inherited the same attributes that you have from God. And then Peter adds that nothing may hinder your prayers. Men, do you know that God may not be answering your prayers because you've not shown the honor to your wife that God demands of you? This especially needs to be said to men who are given to abuse or to strong-arming their wives. God calls you to lead, not to bully. And if you bully, God may not listen to you. So what does that say to us? Christian marriage is simply unique. It was revolutionary in the first century, and it's revolutionary today. Let's not be afraid to be fully Christian in the way in which we celebrate the life of a man and a woman in marriage. John, thanks for your message today. Let me ask you, is it really possible to influence someone for Christ without saying a word? And does that take us off the hook from saying something when we have the opportunity? Yeah, that's such a good question because I know, Ben, you're referring to the the fact that the wives should not be preaching to their husbands, but they should be allowing their conduct to speak. And should we think of that Uh, in other relationships. Well, there may be some, but uh, let me simply say that when Peter says that, he is speaking specifically to one situation. I mean, almost every other situation that we're in, we are called upon to share the good news of Jesus verbally. People must hear in order to believe. Uh, So um, I'm going to say that in most circumstances, that's not the counsel that the Bible gives us, but that in this unique circumstance, that is in the relationship where, you know, a a husband has a Christian wife, uh, you know, Christian wives should not be preaching to their husbands. They should be uniquely living in such a way that honors their husbands. That's what Peter has in mind here. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Under Pressure right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada. It's our hope that your walk with Christ would be strengthened and encouraged through the wide variety of resources made available through so many different mediums to ensure Bible teaching you can trust is freely accessible to those who desire to know the Bible and our Lord more deeply. One listener wrote, It is a joy to listen to Dr. Newfeld and the staff of Back to the Bible Canada as they faithfully teach the Bible daily. It's a real blessing to hear the word daily for encouragement and exhortation. If you feel blessed by this ministry, can we ask you to help us reach our fiscal year-end goal of $409,000? This year, a few friends of the ministry have offered to match your gift dollar for dollar up to $100,000 to make this campaign a success. 
To make your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.